Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, appreciator of the Polish cavalry, Van Schenk. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Microtonal Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Microtonal Swingle? Well, before starting this episode, uh, you and I were thinking, what is the weirdest music we like that we can expose our <laughs> listening audience to? And um, so, well, I think the Polish cavalry one is even harder to explain. Uh, but uh, in, in the show notes today, we're, we're going to link to a uh, piece of music that I'm particularly fond of uh, by a composer named Ben Johnston. And it's basically a string quartet, except it's played using microtones. So basically they don't, they're not playing in the Western music scale or really any music scale. They're just playing extremely precisely defined pitches. So if you choose to listen to this, so it's not like a C or a C sharp. It's like, you know, 15 cents flat of a C or something like that. Yeah. Except all four string instruments are doing that for the entire piece. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and it took like it, I forget the number of tries it took them to record this piece, but it's like four professional musicians and they took like did hundreds of takes to get it right because it's so difficult and precise. So if you're in the mood for something uh, strange or weird, uh, I think we'll probably link to to where you can listen to it. Uh, <laughs> and it, it might sound a little bizarre to your ears, but I think uh if you really give it a chance, you might find some beauty in it. Or maybe not, but I certainly can. So what about you, John? You're going to have to explain this Polish cavalry thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. So this was a, a band that I was introduced to uh, a, a number of years ago. They are a... I, I think the band itself is Swedish, um, but they're they're like a Swedish metal band. Um, and kind of their, their whole shtick is that they like write songs about uh, like historical battles or historical fights, um, you know, things like that. So they, they, they sort of are, are trying to take the place of or, or be kind of like modern bards of like tell, you know, the valiant tales of, you know, bygone eras, uh, basically, but with like metal music. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's great because they um, uh, it, their music, it it like would be cheesy if it just wasn't super awesome. They've like passed through corny back around to epic and it's it's just great. So the the band is called a, a Sabaton. Um, uh, again, we'll we'll put a link in the in the podcast description. But in particular, their sort of premiere piece that like if you've heard of Sabaton, this the song that you've probably heard by them is called the the Winged Hussars, um, and it's this song about the the siege of Vienna. Um, and this is the so the Ottoman Turks have invaded Europe and they've uh, they've laid siege to the city of Vienna. Um, and I remember when this is um, sometime like 1400s or 1500s or something like that. I don't remember the date off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, uh, so the, the siege is like going and um, uh, uh, and it's really not going well for the city of Vienna. And then finally, there's this like, you know, band of this this cavalry unit of of polish uh, uh soldiers who like shows up and it's it's totally like the the scene from uh uh oh, oh gosh what's the movie it from the the uh from the two towers you know when like gandalf and all the riders of rohan come like charging down the hill and they like rout the orcs and you know send them away it's like that but it actually happened in a historical battle of this like cavalry unit showing up and you know 
routing the you know the ottomans uh and you know sending them and basically it's like that was the the high water mark of the ottoman empire and it was just sort of a kind of a slow decline after that um but but anyway so it's it's this so what you're saying is the polish cavalry routed a bunch of orcs <laughs> and a metal band wrote a song about it <laughs> well no no not a bunch of orcs a bunch of ottomans but <laughs> But in the same way, I think we could we could delve into like what did J.R.R. Tolkien intend for the orcs to symbolize? Right? Oh gosh, I do not want to open up this can of worms. Actually, J.R.R. Tolkien would hate that um, <laughs> that we were interpreting Lord of the Rings that way. Yeah, but but nonetheless, it's the point is that it's this epic scene of these like you know horses charging down the hill, you know this cavalry unit to save the day, and it like actually happened in a battle. And so the band Sabaton wrote the song called The Wing to Sars, and it is like one of the most epic songs in the entire world. So you should definitely go listen to it. And here we pivot to um, explain to the audience our vision for the John 315 podcast spinoff, where we talk about Polish military history. <laughs> What's the name of so this podcast, you... <laughs> Jeremy? Please, please email your questions to the John three one five podcast at gmail dot com and let us know if you're interested in our um, or if you have episode one or if you have title <laughs> suggestions for our Polish military history podcast. The Winged Hussar podcast sounds good to me. Oh, so good. <laughs> Partition this. <laughs> But in reality, <laughs> in reality, I don't know anything about Polish military history, except for this battle I just learned about. So perhaps you better stick to the Old Testament or something like that. Yeah, something that we definitely know tons about. <laughs> Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. So today we got a bit of a different format, uh, but I think one that's warranted. We're actually going to look at a whole book of scripture instead of just a verse. Or a passage, as we've sometimes done. Uh, and I think the reason for selecting this book is, first of all, it's very short. So four chapters, just about ten verses apiece, uh, except for the first chapter has a little more. Um, and uh, I think that there isn't really one single misunderstanding about it. It's kind of the, the theme of the book is misunderstood by a lot of people. And uh, this, of course, is the uh, famous minor prophet Jonah that we're going to actually read through the whole thing today, which is, is as I said, is not that long, uh, and kind of dig into the details of what this famous, you know, story we probably all heard in Sunday school is really about. So I think we're going to go um, kind of chapter by chapter. And before we, before we, I mean, yeah, I guess we're not going to launch directly into the themes of the book. I just kind of want to read the story because this is one of those books of scripture where we're definitely the story needs to tease out, you know, the details of what it's about. And since it's, since it's such a short narrative, there's a lot of little details and points that I think are going to be important to hit as we go that, that people might miss. Um, so yeah, we'll just go chapter by chapter. And after each chapter, I think we'll stop and make some observations. Sound good, John? Sounds great. Let's dig in. All right. It's time for the meat. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down onto it uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? What, and, what of your, and of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the seas may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the mere... Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, there's Jonah 1. That's the longest of the four chapters. Um, so, and kind of sets the scene, right? Uh, th this main kind of prom problem, <laughs> we might say, you know. Uh, the Lord commands this thing of Jonah. Jonah says, heck no. Um, goes the other way, right? And we all know this stuff. Gets thrown overboard because he's the one at fault. And this whale um, swallows him up, except it's actually not a whale. <laughs> so, <laughs> common misconception. This is not going to be the uh, primary point of this episode, uh, but worth pointing out while we're here, um, that this quote-unquote whale that we often hear of, um, you might have noticed when John was reading it, it's just great fish. In Hebrew, it's dog gadol. Gadol means like tall or great or large or something like that. And then dog just means fish. And yes, in, in Hebrew, the word for fish is pronounced exactly like the English word for dog. Uh, <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, so we got this this dog gadol uh, swallows up Jonah. And uh, we don't know if it's a whale or something else. Uh you know, makes sense that a whale would, but also you, the Lord appointed this fish to show up. So it could be some special fish made just for this occasion, that, for all we know. It's not the main point of the uh, of the text. But uh, so now that we got that out of the way, that's not really the main point here. 
Um, let's take a look at what uh, these characters are doing in this first chapter. Uh, the first thing that, that pops out in my, my eyes is this idea of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Uh, and just kind of the, the irony and impossibility of that. Right? Like he, he's going to end up finding the Lord inside a fish <laughs> because he tried to get away from the presence of the Lord. Um, yeah, yeah. This this idea that you know Jonah even says you know he you know that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, so like what then? What did you think was going to happen when you tried to flee from him over the sea? Like he made the thing. Like like you can't escape God. Right. Yeah. He's there's this hypocrisy of Jonah that we get so early in in the story. You know, it's like. <laughs> uh, they ask him who, you know, where are you from? What's your religion basically. Right. Um, and, uh, he, he reveals where he's from and he's like, Oh yeah, I'm an Israelite. You know, those guys who worship Yahweh, um, who made the sea and the dry land and everything, you know, and certainly, you know, the law of Moses, which Jonah I'm sure knew, or at least ought to have known, um, is clear that the Lord created everything and isn't just the God of Israel. Although he is the God of Israel, he's also the God of everything and everyone. So there's this already this like the the confession that is on Jonah's lips doesn't match his actions. And that's that's an immediate impression we get uh, of Jonah, I think. Um but there's also these other characters. These mariners, right? Seafaring men. And what are they like? What are they doing in this chapter? Like so they are frankly, just better people than Jonah. <laughs> I think that's like like a good takeaway we can have here. They fear the Lord. It says that they fear, quote unquote, the Lord. But Jonah only says he fears the Lord. In reality, he doesn't actually fear the Lord. And they're actually concerned for Jonah's life. They don't want to throw him overboard, even though Jonah says it's okay. Uh, because they're worried that the God of Israel will judge them for throwing overboard this Israelite. Jonah. So, <laughs> so they're actually more concerned about this God of Israel and his opinion of them than Jonah is. And furthermore, they're more concerned for this foreigner Jonah than Jonah is concerned for this whole city of Nineveh that God has commanded him to go preach for. <laughs> so immediately you've got this interesting, like this is a minor prophet, but already the prophet doesn't look so good compared to the other characters in the story. And that's highly unusual for the prophetic uh, books of the, of the old Testament. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's particularly telling that we have, you know, this, you know, when the tempest comes, you have all of these, these other sailors who are like crying out to their gods. And it says, um, you know, it says, but Jonah had gone into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep, you know, where it's just this image of, of Jonah having such disregard for the boat and the people who were on it were like everybody else is, you know, doing everything that they can, crying out to their gods. And Jonah's like, well, well I'll just go take a nap, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I wonder if this is an intentional parallel, but it does remind me of the story of Jesus when the disciples are on the boat and there's a storm and he's sleeping. You know, although in that story, Jesus is the good guy, but it's certainly a very similar story. Um and so I wonder if there's like a little bit of, um, I don't know, a little bit of a statement here that like, because Jesus 
does have control over the waters, he can sleep soundly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But here Jonah is being like kind of critiqued for for his lackadaisicalness, you know. Um, and in that way, in the in the New Testament, when the disciples are critiquing Jesus for being asleep, they're like, "Hey, you know, come come save us, right? Why are you sleeping? Yeah, and do you want us to die? Right. It's because they don't understand yet who he is. That's kind of the whole point of that that parable. I think they don't get that Jesus is in total control of it. I I, I think there's got to be like a deliberate parallel because there's just so many similarities. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, and, yeah. And this isn't the only place <laughs> where there's similarities between Jonah and Jesus. Uh, the perceptive listener may have caught the three days and three nights <laughs> that Jonah is in the belly of this dog Gadol. Um, <laughs> and Jesus actually picks up on that himself in Matthew 12, when he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man that's Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, in other words, interred, you know, entombed, right? So, there's this idea that Jesus has that these three days and three nights that Jonah spent in the belly of a fish before being saved from the fish, there's an echo to that in Jesus's being saved from death by rising from the dead. Um, so, now, Jesus is a much better person than Jonah, <laughs> As we'll, as we'll talk plenty about in the next few chapters. But uh, it's interesting that there are these parallels between the stories. Right, certainly. And, you know, maybe even to draw the connection with Jesus a little bit more there, that, you know, you get this really fascinating picture of the sailors, you know, who are, um, you know, buffeted by the waves and by, like, sacrificing the one man, they are saved. And I think that is also meant to point to Christ as well, that, you know, we, you know, we are like those sailors who are in the boat. And it is like through the sacrifice of Jesus that we then are also delivered from the storm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. But that's a good point. There's like, there's so much to this little story. Right? There's only a few characters and the way they interact is just so fascinating. Um. But but yeah, so so it's interesting that they even say, like, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Right? It's like, well, Isaiah says it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to do it. Right. So, yeah, there's definitely this element of of um, we're all saved uh, by the one man's death. The many will be made righteous. Right. As Paul would say. Um, and, and I find it very interesting. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord and they make vows. These men don't even believe that the God of Israel is the only God out there. You know, the, the, the text makes that pretty clear. Yeah, they've just been praying and worshiping other gods. Right. Perhaps the God, meaning, you know, this one other God of this Israelite man will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So these men aren't worshipers of, of Yahweh by any stretch. They're not even monotheists, much less the correct mono god to worship you know they're, they're just uh, polytheists but nevertheless when it comes down to it they they have a fear for the lord that jonah himself does not <laughs> you know um and they are concerned for others and they're even concerned about this god um even if they're confused and think he's one among many so <laughs> so finally uh one last thing i think before we move on to chapter two that is worth pointing out as we go through this book. There's this really interesting 
look at God's control over creation in Jonah and, uh, and also his concern for it, that God is concerned about the details of the natural world. And we're going to see some of this, I think, in pretty much every chapter, if not every chapter. But here we see that God hurls this tempest upon the ship, right? It's active. It's not this tempest showed up. It's no, like God caused the tempest to be there. He was the one who, who made it happen. And then lastly, there's this, this appointed term. It says that God appointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah. And we're going to see that term a lot, actually, this term appointed uh, to describe God's dealing with nature. Like he is directing the events of this story all of these natural phenomena that happened to Jonah and the supernatural phenomena, uh, like being spit out of the fish, all of this is God orchestrating events in nature. So that being said, let's uh, head on to chapter two, uh, which is going to be Jonah as he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And this, this chapter is going to comprise a prayer that Jonah prays to God when he's in the midst of this uh, this fish. (laughs) So, uh, Jonah chapter two, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So first observation, like we were saying right before we started the chapter, we again see that the Lord is orchestrating nature here. The Lord spoke to the fish. And then it vomits Jonah out, right? The Lord caused that to happen in response to this prayer, presumably. Well, and I'll point out it's even more than that, because if you look at um, if you look at verse three, um, Jonah says, you know, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of heart of the seas, where, you know, in the previous chapter, we see that, you know, the, 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 the individuals who are shown to be casting Jonah into the sea are actually the sailors on the ship. And so, I, you know, even here we're getting this idea of that God is in some sense being viewed as a causal agent uh, participating in Jonah being cast into the sea there. So it's it's not even just the events of the natural order that are being shown here as under God's control, but that's, that's definitely a point that's being made. But it's even more holistic than that of God orchestrating everything that is happening to put Jonah in the place where he's at. Yeah, and isn't it interesting, too, just as a um, character development point here for Jonah, that Jonah's aware of this. So this isn't like the narrator. This is coming off the lips of Jonah, um, you know, as the narrator is is relaying them to us. So Jonah knows this. <laughs> this. This book has a very high, yeah, 
oh sure yeah this is this is not jonah the narrator speaking this is jonah the right, character yeah speaking. so so i do find it interesting that that jonah comes across as a very theologically accurate prophet in this book like jonah's theology has no issues right and um you know, we're going to roast Jonah over the course of the rest of this episode. We've already sort of spoken negatively. Of course, we're only <laughs> doing what the narrator is doing himself <laughs> in the book of Jonah. Um, but but it's worth pointing out that Jonah has a great theology. OK, like everything he says in this prayer is pretty, pretty like dang skippy. It's <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, if if a, <laughs> if I was stuck in in the belly of a huge fish and I came up with this prayer, I'd be pretty happy with myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good one. All things considered, like I got stomach acid all over me, but that was pretty good, you know. <laughs> so, anyways, like, <laughs> so one thing that Jonah Jonah seems to identify in the prayer, which is interesting, is this theme of flooding, which. Of course, as a good Israelite, he would have read the Torah. He would have known about the great flood in the days of Noah, right? And, and, and so this idea of water as a form of judgment, particularly in great quantities and floods, right? Um, you know, we, there's also like the Egyptians being drowned in the Red Sea when the waters close over them. And, and so you have that idea in this passage, too, um, of the waters, he, uh, Jonah says, the waters closed in over me to take my life, right? So, so I think, and I guess the Jewish mindset, you have this idea of water as judgment. And Jonah is sort of here, whether consciously or not, I think echoing this idea of like, the waters are coming in over me, right? Um, you know, the, the way, it's like the wave, <laughs> and you know the wave is too big you're going to be overwhelmed by it but you see it coming it's not hit you yet but then it does you know and it, it overwhelms you it's the same way with with the red sea and the egyptians who were drowned right and it's and it's the same way and there's lots of ideas of this in scripture um so this was was embedded in the jewish mindset so when jonah is saved out of this when he's in the belly of the huge fish and he's not dead i think that's meaningful to jonah <laughs> And I think it's meaningful in the sense that even though flooding is God's judgment, Jonah is recognizing, well, apparently I wasn't judged in any final sense here because <laughs> I'm still alive, right? So th this must be a form of correction, instructive discipline. So if I devote myself to the Lord, if I offer a prayer to him and thank him for saving me, certainly the Lord is going to be good to me and get me out of here, right? I, th I think there's definitely a a faithfulness and a trust in the Lord here uh, on Jonah's part. Yes. Yeah. No, this, this is, this is the focus definitely here is on uh, repentance and then the like restoration that that repentance will bring about. Now I find this interesting that he mentions God's temple. He says, um, my prayer will, or sorry, my prayer came to the Lord in his holy temple. Which is a little interesting because Jonah's in a in a fish. <laughs> right? So, uh, what do you make of that, John? Like, I don't know. I, I think there's different ways we could interpret that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, like, I one thing that sticks out to me is that the you know you know it says that his prayer comes to the Lord in his holy temple. Um, so, on the one hand, it might almost sound like 
it might almost sound like this uh, uh, idea of God being, you know, God's only in one place, like God's in, in the temple, like, and meaning that like God's not here. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily the point that is trying to be made in this verse. I, I guess I would say more that the, um, you, you, you have this idea in the old Testament of, uh, God's presence, like God's glory coming to rest on certain places. Um, so you have this, um, uh, uh, this was like the cloud and the pillar of fire that the, that the Israelites, uh, were led by when they were in the wilderness. Um, this is the same glory that like comes and rests in on the tabernacle and, uh, and eventually in the temple as well. And so, you know, there's this idea that like God's glory can be like localized in, in a certain region of space almost, um, and, and, and so I, I wonder if that might be kind of the idea that, that Jonah is trying to access here of the like special presence of the God of God that's like connected with his um, like faithfulness to his covenant people. So sort of the idea is that like God's presence in the temple is this is how God's people have access to him is like through the temple. And so like I, you know, I almost wonder if, if the point that he's trying to make here is that like even in the belly of the fish, his prayers can still come to God in his holy temple. And so the, the idea is that like it is, you know, Jonah doesn't need to come to the temple. His prayers are still heard by God in through this, this, the, you know, the physical structure being the way that God's presence is accessed by humans and, and specifically by Israelites. And so I think kind of more, he's really trying to make this point that, um, that, God's, uh, uh, God is still, uh, accessible to him, even in the belly of the fish. Yeah. So interesting. So you would say that perhaps, perhaps you don't agree with, with an understanding that Jonah is like expressing it maybe a more developed new Testament sense of the temple, right? Because, because Paul talks about the Holy spirit dwelling in us, right? And we are his temple. And so what you're saying, and I think, I think I agree is that it's not, it's not that that Jonah is saying, which would make sense because that's not, (laughs) the New Testament hasn't been written yet. You know, the Holy Spirit isn't indwelling believers, but it's almost like because he knows that the Lord has his presence on earth and he's aware that all the nations are owned by God, not just Israel. He created the, the earth and everything in it the sea and the dry land, right? And he believes that, well, and, and even like in the temple dedication uh, in Solomon's day, isn't there like a statement that all the nations will come and like worship you at this temple? I don't have like the reference pulled up, but isn't that, does that ring a bell? Yes, no, no, that 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 is, yes, no, that is a big point that, yeah, part part of the temple is that it is a center point, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Yeah, so it seems like Jonah's mindset then is that because of the existence of this temple, even though I'm in this fish <laughs> in the opposite direction of where you originally <laughs> intended me to go, my prayer can reach you as long as it is the kind of prayer that is pleasing to you. Right. And and we've been primed for this already, even because we've been told before that what Jonah has been attempting to do is flee from, quote, the presence of the Lord. Um, and so I think that this is his reversal and acknowledgement that you know on the one hand that's a that's a futile task 
But then on the other, like you're saying that, you know, in the posture of repentance, it's like, I don't need to go to the temple. My prayer still comes to you there. Yeah. And, you know, I think so. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder if Jonah would have the mindset in his day to understand that, like, even the temple being destroyed doesn't mean God's presence has left his people or his earth, um, which is a, a concept that, you know, now that would be getting a little far away from the point of Jonah here. But I'm just I'm just wondering I always wonder with these Old Testament characters where they're at. Right. You know, without understanding the Holy Spirit or the Trinity at all, right? Without understanding um, sacrifice for sin in the New Testament concept of it. So, like, you and I are really big on the idea that the New Covenant is just an extension and continuation of the Old. Right. It intensifies it, right? But it's it doesn't contradict it. So, but of course, like, you know, they just knew so much less than we did. <laughs> um, without Christ, obviously, who is the centerpiece of our faith, you know, um, it just makes me wonder where he was at. But I think I agree with you. I think, I think it's like he thinks of his prayers as somehow like maybe shooting off to the temple right? and then from there <laughs> being heard by God or something like that. That's, that's kind of how I'm picturing Jonah. If Jonah was thinking of, of his prayers spatially, right? He might think it's going out of the fish toward Jerusalem. And since that's God's presence being mediated on earth, that's how it's going up to heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and I think this really fits with this, with the Jewish conception um, of like what, what the temple is, that it is like this place where earth and heaven are linked together. And so, yeah, it would be in, in that sense of, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you're probably right that it's, that like to get to God, it goes through the temple, which, you know, I mean, even in the, even in the new Testament sense of it, that's like, th like that's still the way that, that we think about things now that, um, you know, the, the book of Hebrews talks about, you know, the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's, you know, in heaven. Uh, and, and so it like, it's like, we, our connection with God is still mediated through a high priest serving in a temple. It's just the temple that is in heaven and our high priest is Jesus. But, you know, it's like, so in that sense, like, well, no, the temple, the, sorry, sorry, not to interrupt, but the temple's in us. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. So we, we, cause like, it's the Holy spirit mediating the presence of God within us. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. So, um, not to, not to interrupt, but <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. The, the, um, I guess the point that I was making though, was this, uh, uh, the, the, uh, hmm. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I totally derailed you, but, <laughs> but <laughs> no I'm, worries, I'm, no worries. I'm actually still fixated on, cause I'm, I'm super interested in how Jonah understands this prayer Okay. and, and his posture toward God. So I'm still thinking of, of it in terms of like, wh what is the temple? what is it about right and it's mediating presence between heaven and earth so if the physical temple built by solomon is that for jonah then the holy spirit must be that as he dwells within us individually and as a corporate church body so we must be the temple and god is in heaven but his temple is within us well i i guess i would say i think there's two halves to the the reality of the temple because you have like the physical temple that's on earth, but you know, we also get these images of, uh, you know, this is um, like Isaiah, you know, Isaiah six of this image of the throne room of God. 
Um, and like I said, you know, in Hebrews, there's this discussion of like the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's in heaven. Okay. Yeah, that's good. What, but what I do want to say is, um, so, you know, there's these like two halves to the reality of the temple. And so that the, the temple that was on earth, you know, this, like the, the, you know, the first, like Solomon's temple that was on earth is this representation of a reality that is also in heaven and that it is the interface between heaven and earth. And so if we, I guess I would loop it in that in the sense that we are also temple, like a temple, like a temple of the Holy Spirit. But I think that is then the half of the reality that is in heaven as well, if if that makes sense. So that it's rather than having the interface be at a particular place on earth, like, you know, in Palestine, it's that the interface is our very selves. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. We need to do an episode on this because my mind is like, I'm just realizing <laughs> that I I don't understand this as well as I wish I did. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, we should totally have a chat about this. I'm I'm totally verbal processing right now and kind of figuring this out <laughs> on the spot. It's so much fun. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think that's a good, maybe, well, okay. Maybe I'll throw this in there. The author of Hebrews does say that the tabernacle on earth was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, right? Yeah, and okay, so I guess it is the, heavenly things, but... Yeah, if uh, of what is in heaven, I think, is what the NIV says. Um, but, but yeah, so if that's the case, maybe the heavenly reality in the Old Testament is fairly similar to how it functions in the New. It's just that the mediation mechanism on Earth is so wildly different now because we have the spirit instead of this physical temple. And maybe that's how you have so much continuity in mediation and and in despite of <laughs> i'm sorry i'm really blowing my own mind here in no, spite no, no, of no. the fact that that christ changes so much when you read the old testament like jonah here you still have this kind of like yeah my prayer can come to god i don't have to be at the temple this this thing that i'm doing right now he even says it's like obedience to god is like payment of a sacrifice um that's mm-hmm. kind of his idea in this in this song. So you've got these details that make it, you know, kind of feel like Jonah's a, not that different from you or I in some ways, you know, um, even though he's on the other side of this covenant. And I wonder if the key to that is understanding this, like, the heavenly things as they change throughout time maybe don't look as different as the earthly things changing throughout time. Hmm, interesting. But at the risk of not getting to the main point of the book of Jonah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to put a pin in that for now. <laughs> um, and just, yeah. So that's an interesting little point. <laughs> this one little verse and Jonah too. So Jonah, Jonah's praying to God. He knows his prayers heard. He says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. What I have vowed, I will pay. And I, I understand this to be Jonah redoubling his commitment to Christ, so to speak, and being like, okay, I will do what you told me, Lord. I'm, I'm serious this time. You know, and, and based on the context, I don't think he's talking about like, whenever in the future I get to go to the temple and sacrifice again, like a literal sacrifice. I think he's understanding obedience as sacrifice. Here. Mm, interesting. And there's plenty of warrant. There's plenty of warrant for that, you know, in books of the old testament that had already been written at this point right um so <laughs> you know uh like the stories of uh of uh saul um and you know to obey is better than sacrifice and all that uh 
So, well, I guess there's debate if First Samuel had been written yet, but certainly Saul had been king already by this point. So that was a story that existed in, in the Hebrew mindset. Right. Uh, yeah. So one other thing that I find really interesting about Jonah and the belly of the fish, uh, John, is this verse that mentions this gospel choir of singing vegetables. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It, it it does feel like a little bit of a tone shift right in the middle of chapter two. But, you know, I guess I guess the authors of scripture know better than us. Yeah, it's crazy. They're like singing in a style that hasn't even been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and they are <laughs> there's like all this room i guess in this fish i i was kind of under the impression there was hardly any room for jonah to even move around in or, or breathe or speak you know <laughs> but apparently you can do this whole like showpiece with with singing vegetables yeah so for the same two atheists who were listening to our podcast last week and have definitely tuned in again um so what what <laughs> what are you referring to right now jeremy <laughs> You know, this, the, the, the part with the singing gospel choir vegetable. <laughs> I, I saw it. I saw it on a movie, so it must be true. Yeah, no, it's totally true. <laughs> now, now uh, I don't want to dunk on VeggieTales too much because VeggieTales, the Jonah movie, actually gets Jonah right. Um, right. And most Sunday school curriculums do not. So <laughs> I'm actually surprised at how right they got Jonah, considering that VeggieTales is often pretty wishy-washy in its presentation of stuff, like turning Bathsheba into a rubber duck. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, but the Jonah movie's good, dude. Um, <laughs> this isn't an analysis of the Jonah VeggieTales movie, but uh, I thought we had to mention it. <laughs> we had to mention the singing gospel choir of vegetables. I mean, that's just... Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> So before we move on to chapter three, it mentions that Jonah's vomited upon the dry land. It uses that phrase. And remember that Jonah stated to the mariners that he believes God made the uh, sea and the dry land and, and that God has authority and power over these things. So Jonah's now in the sea in this chapter, and he decides he's going to believe God and obey him. But is he going to do that when he's back on the dry land that's that's the question as the reader uh we should now be kind of asking ourselves all right so what's going to happen is is this um is this going to be the way forward for jonah is he going to obey um and we'll see picking up in jonah chapter three here then the word of the lord came to jonah the second time saying arise go to nineveh that great city and call out against it the message that i tell you so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, neither let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, again, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that the details matter in a small book like this, right? And one detail that I think should pop out to the careful reader is that it says the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, quote unquote, a second time. Now, that's not an unusual phrasing for the for the prophetic books. Um, well, Jeremy, I will say it comes to Jonah the second time. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Oh, oh, just that. Um, <laughs> well, no, it's usually you who dunks on me about getting words specific. And so I was just trying to pay you back. <laughs> OK, so sorry, I miss I misquoted it. <laughs> it's the second time. I Well, I, I, I do. I. I do think it is actually important, the articles. I have no idea if this is substantiated by the Hebrew or not. But, like, saying that it comes the second time versus a second time is, like, there there is actually a meaning difference between those two things. Where it's not like it's like, oh, God just did it again. It's like, no, God did it, you know, this is the second time that God did it. And I think it really puts emphasis on the... God did it once, God did it the second time, and now you are, we are being brought into this the second time that, that, you know, the word of God is coming. Well, it does have that implication in English. I'm not going to look up the verse in Hebrew, but I will say I highly doubt, based on what I know of the Hebrew language, <laughs> that that is even something reflected in the Hebrew. Uh, okay, so this is, we're reading into, <laughs> we're exegeting the editors of the ESV here. <laughs> yeah, there, now there is, I mean, there are ways to say a something with uh, versus the something, certainly in Hebrew. This whole, like, there's probably not, like, a literal word that says time and a literal word that says second. Based on my total guesswork. <laughs> uh, so I'll just, you know dunk on you as a guess um, <laughs> just mutual dunking this is great there's probably some expression that gets translated to like the second time um but i'm not sure of that um without looking at well it. i'm sorry that i derailed us can you go back to your point <laughs> <laughs> sure well i just all i was trying to say okay is that the ninevites listened to god the first time that's the interesting contrast here the narrator oh, sure. makes this special point to say that it comes the second time and Jonah obeys. But the Ninevites are like, whoa, we better obey God. <laughs> right? Like there's not any. When the word of God comes, the Ninevites hear the first time. Yeah, no, I, that, that's <laughs> that that's pretty savage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to see these. Again, this is a character driven story. So it's important to, to you know, see what the, the scriptures are saying about these characters. Right. The Ninevites are like, hey, let's repent. <laughs> you know? And Jonah also has repented, but he had to get whipped a little bit first, right? It's <laughs> an interesting contrast. Um, but also there's a contrast here between the Jonah of chapter one and the Jonah of chapter three, because God repeats his message. It, it, you know, it doesn't just say God spoke again to Jonah the second time. It actually repeats the message. 
to uh, what does it say here? Um, to go to Nineveh, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So God repeats himself, kind of giving Jonah this second chance, right? It's like, all right, same thing. Don't screw it up this time. (laughs) (laughs) Go arise and go preach this message. And then the story says Jonah arose, but instead of quote unquote arising to flee, going the other direction from Nineveh, he arises to obey. So clearly Jonah's gone through something in this uh, dog gadol experience, right? There's there's a new Jonah that has arisen um, out of the belly of the fish or perhaps vomited out of the, the belly of the fish. Um. <laughs> well, and 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 that's actually something that stood out to me um, just this time that we were reading through it again of the the way that chapter two ends, where you know the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, and like what sticks out is that you know the Lord spoke, so this is God's word that is happening right here, and then Jonah is being delivered from the sea onto the dry land, and like. The phrase dry land is like loops us back to the creation story of this, you know, God separating the 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 dry land from the seas. And like in that one, it's also that like God speaks, it, you know, it's God's word that that is this creative action that separates the land and the sea from one another. And so it like I like I think really what we're supposed to be seeing here is this idea of God like recreating Jonah in a sense that you know that it's god speaks and then jonah comes into like this new jonah comes into existence upon the dry land yeah yeah for sure there's like a it's a resurrection of sorts let's say <laughs> yes yeah totally well speaking again of resurrection we mentioned the three days and the three nights that jonah spent in the fish but we actually see the phrase three days show up again in this chapter and that is the approximate number uh, approximate length of time it would take a person to walk the breadth of the city of Nineveh that's mentioned specifically um and bible bible reading tip if we haven't mentioned it already on the show numbers are pretty significant <laughs> numbers are used to link concepts um that doesn't mean every single number like don't don't get into like the crazy bible code stuff or like <laughs> there's ways that you can overinterpret the numbers in the bible okay right but don't don't go crazy with it but like the fact that we just talked about three days and three nights and now it's mentioning that it's three days to go through the city that should be something we're cluing into and i i i, I here's the thing though i don't exactly know what it means i just know that it's probably intentional <laughs> on the author's part to put to put this there um and my guess is this my guess is that it's mentioned to emphasize that it's like it's going to take Jonah just as long to finish obedience to God as it took for him to suffer the consequences of it inside the fish when he didn't obey God. Oh, interesting. I that's the only thing I can think of that that's just a theory. I'm not wedded to it, but uh but I thought it was worth pointing out at least. And uh there's another number of days that's mentioned in this uh chapter. It's the 40 days, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? So where else do we see 40 days in Scripture? You know, maybe maybe one or two places. <laughs> yeah, lots like of them. 10. I'm thinking you got 40 days of fasting for Jesus. You got 40 days and 40 nights for Noah. You've got 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Yeah, there's also Moses on Mount Sinai 
he's receiving the law over the, the course of 40 days while nothing scandalous is going mm, on below. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, no, nothing so, scandalous at all. Yeah, so 40 days. The, 40 has this idea of, like, testing. Um, like, so whether it's days or, or in the case of the wandering in the wilderness, years, for whatever reason, 40 gets attached to the significance of, like, proving something's metal, you know? So God judges the earth. He, he separates Noah from the rest of the earth and judges it over a course of 40 days. He judges amongst his own people as they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? He tests Moses on Mount Sinai, and he tests slash tempts <laughs> Christ uh, in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, it's We've had an, mm-hmm. uh, an episode about temptation <laughs> and that fun word. But so there's this idea of it. This is a test. Nineveh is being presented by Jonah to this test of like 40 days. You've got 40 days, right? But but it's interesting that Jonah, right? Yeah. What's your response to this? It's interesting, though, that the narrative doesn't say Jonah says God will like stop himself from destroying them. It doesn't say like yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown unless you repent. Jonah doesn't say any such thing. Now, maybe this is a, you know, shortened version of what he preached, but this is, this is a very, you know, punchy, well-written narrative. I think the narrator left it out intentionally, right? So it's interesting that they respond. Right. And, you know, the audience, we should, the audience should remember that because we're going to get to something at the end of the book that leads me to think that my suspicion is I don't think Jonah did actually say anything like that you know yeah say like, I, I think he just he this is like the the guy that kind of annoys you preaching on the street you're like he's like everything he says is right but he's just so mean and he doesn't like ever talk about mercy or grace you know <laughs> he's just like all your people and your sin <laughs> yeah well no and and we even have evidence that that uh that it that the people didn't necessarily internalize a promise of deliverance upon repentance. Um, because, you know, if you look at what the king says, he says, you know, in his decree, like, oh, if, you know, if we turn from our evil, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, angers that we may not perish. So it's like, at least the king of Nineveh isn't like, he doesn't have confidence that repentance will actually lead to their deliverance. Yeah, it's almost like a Hail Mary for him. It's like, who knows? This might happen. Like, we yeah. don't really know this God super well. Maybe he'll change his mind. We don't know. <laughs> like, right. You know, it, they didn't have the foresight that we might have with all the scriptures available to us to know God's character. They just were convicted that they had been doing wrong and they decided to change their, their ways regardless of whether it affected their destiny or not. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and OK, this is crazy, too. This this is like a funny um a funny situation in a movie or something. It's not just all the people who put on sackcloth and ashes and who fast. It's all the animals as well. This is so bizarre to me. Right. So people have like goats and, you know, cows and stuff, and they're putting sackcloth and ashes on their goats and cows. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't think Jonah told them to do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, so you've got this sackcloth, which is like this uncomfortable, itchy clothing. Uh, signifies desolation and poverty, right? And ashes, of course, symbolize death. So it's common in scripture to put on sackcloth and ashes as a means of mourning. 
but it almost has this intensified thing here in Nineveh because they're like, we might just die in 40 days no matter what we do. Right? So, so they're like dead men walking. They're right. putting on ashes. They're fasting. Even the animals aren't feeding or drinking. Like, I don't even know what that would look like to be taking care of animals but not letting them eat or drink. But this is a serious fast. So, like, I don't know. Most people at least drink water when they fast. But it's interesting that, like, like we've been saying, God has a concern and an interest in the details of nature here. I think that's, that's maybe the point of bringing this up uh, for the narrator is just like, even the animals are a part of this. Somehow they're a part of what's going on in this uh, city. And, and that'll actually be picked up one, more, one last time in chapter four. So we'll talk about it there. Um, one last thing. I, I think one other thing we can do to contrast Jonah, who is sort of this representative from Israel with the Ninevites, is that this king of Nineveh repents and actually is the one who initiates the repentance of everybody. The king of Israel, though, at this time is Jeroboam II. And uh, in 2 Kings 14, it mentions that he's the king at the time Jonah's prophesying. So we know it's him. And Jeroboam II is an evil king. Uh, you know, and of course, most of them <laughs> were evil kings. So it's interesting that you have this king of Nineveh, you know, which would be sort of like to us, it would be like, I don't know, Putin or Xi Jinping, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, like deciding to repent. It's like, what? Putin? Like, Xi Jinping, the guy who, like, kills his own people and suppresses, like, you know, it'd be like them repenting, but, like, you know, President Biden doesn't change his mind about anything. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's just this bizarre, like, it, that's kind of what it would be like for us as Americans. Must, must be a weird spot to be in. Just an interesting observation. Well, no, actually... Actually, that comparison is apt because, you know, Biden at least claims to be a Catholic and so should know better where Xi Jinping, like, you know, there's no facade about what that man believes. Oh, yeah. Well, this is more apropos than I thought. All right. So let's dig into Jonah 4. And man, this is like one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So I'm excited. All right. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, 
which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> this ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Yeah, that's the end of Jonah. Crazy. One of the best, honestly, one of my favorite endings to any book in the Bible. Maybe Revel- maybe Revelation beats it. Uh, well, uh, yeah, Revelation does beat it. Uh, <laughs> you know, but this, I just love this ending for so many reasons. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there when we get there. First, let's, let's notice more control over nature here. God appoints three things in nature in this chapter. First, he appoints the plant. Then he appoints a worm to eat the plant. And then he appoints a scorching east wind just to tick off Jonah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so it's this really interesting. So God, like, gives Jonah comfort. Then he takes it away. And then he, like, makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> like, anybody who thinks God doesn't have a sense of humor, just, like... It's pretty, it's really funny when you think about it because Jonah's this pathetic figure just being like, I want to die. Ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and God's like, <laughs> yeah, you can almost see God being like, oh, you think you want to die now? Just wait till the scorching east wind comes. He's like, this, just this man child, right? He's just whining. And, and, you know, to be fair, like, look, I, we have all the comforts of <laughs> the 21st century. This doesn't sound fun. He's faint in the sun. You know, this sounds pretty right. awful. Um, but re- coming at it as a reader, it's comical to us, even though it was probably painful for him, you know. And 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 I think the narrator definitely wants us to see a bit of like humor in this, a bit of like irony. The difference between Jonah and God here um, is just so yeah. so vast, right? But moreover, and this is where the heart of why we wanted to do an episode on this book, Jonah reveals the reason he disobeyed God here. Why did he flee to Tarshish to begin with? Mm-hmm. He says explicitly, it's because he knows God is a merciful God. Whoa, that's just wild. Basically, Jonah knew that if Nineveh responded to his message, that God wouldn't destroy them. And Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. That's why he disobeyed. Mm-hmm. And that is a very different way to understand this book than is sometimes taught. I th- and again, look, you know, we're not giving any crazy theory here. Veggie Tales got this right. So <laughs> it's not that this is like a super out there. It's just I think a lot of people miss this detail. I definitely remember being taught when I was younger in Sunday school that this book is about like how we need to be bold in evangelism and not be fearful. Jonah wasn't fearful. There was nothing about going to Nineveh and preaching that scared Jonah. He just wanted Nineveh to be wiped off the face of the earth. That's that's why he didn't go. So this idea that like Jonah is about not being timid or whatever and obe- obedience to the Lord no matter what, that's not what Jonah's about. It never mentions Jonah being scared to go to Nineveh. Um, and really, Jonah isn't even about evangelism. I mean, we can draw insights about evangelism and God's concern for the world from Jonah, certainly. But this just isn't the main thing that's going on here. So what do you think about this, John? Like, this is kind of crazy. Jonah doesn't want to preach because he wants them to be destroyed. It's a very different worldview, I think, than we're tempted to have in the church today. How do you read this? Yes, no, I I, I think that 
Jonah here is presented um I I I think this is one of the most human presentations of a prophet that we really get in in the Old Testament. Uh and and when what I say that is I I think it is a deeply human thing for us to like want the destruction of our enemies um and to like like this this desire for and, and and I think in in a good sense it's it's like a manifestation of justice but like I mean we like people people take that way too far of not just wanting justice but like revenge and like spiteful destruction and you know and, and so we're shown here this like Jonah being uh like spiteful and vengeful and like and and when when i see that what all i see in this story is the reflection of my own heart of in myself the same flashes of spite or bitterness or seeking revenge when like pe- like in interactions with people that i have of you know they have inconvenienced me or wronged me and you know like in like my you know the the evil that is in my heart responds with wanting you know destruction or vengeance brought down on them and so i guess in 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 that sense i think jonah like i definitely see a lot of that identification of jonah in in myself and I, I think what's what's so hard about that is it's I think easy to for me to justify in my own head that there is that like that that seeking or that desire for revenge is something about justice of like, oh no, they wronged me. I, I just wanted to be set right. But like what's I I think hard about reading this chapter or reading this book is that there is no like justification or like self justification that Jonah is doing right here. He's just putting it like he is brutally honest in this moment of saying, no, it is that I wanted to like, I wanted mercy withheld and like, like that, that is what I wanted. And, and I think for what that, what that convicts me of is this, you know, those same feelings of vengeance or spite that I have are, no, this is not about justice. This is not about setting things right. This is because I, too, am wanting mercy withheld. And, yeah, so I think I, I, I think this book really hits home in, in, a, in a pretty powerful way. Yeah, I, I read you for sure. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, it's hypocritical and ironic for Jonah and for us, right? That, that he pleads for mercy and God grants it to him. And he doesn't want to extend that to Nineveh, right? Yeah. And, and that's what it's like when we, when, when I, I'll say, like, I want to exact justice instead of being more postured toward mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think like this is certainly, uh, at the root of a lot of the, the conflict 
in our culture today. <laughs> we mentioned Joe Biden earlier, but you know, not to not to get in the weeds and politics or anything, but yeah, people are just angry at each other in a way that was not the case, um, you know, a decade ago over politics and stuff. And uh, and for completely understandable reasons, I mean, there's been some pretty radical stuff done by politicians in the last 15 months or so. Um, but I think there is a way of desiring justice, which is is right and good, you know, in the sense that, like, yeah, Nineveh deserved to be overthrown. Like, God showed mercy mm -hmm. to them because he wanted to, not because he had to. Um, so there's that right. there's that righteous sense of justice. But if it's not tempered with an understanding that we deserve it just as much, <laughs> like that the we yeah. the Lord chose to have mercy on us, his own people, then we are going to get really off balance um, and begin to communicate, if not explicitly, then implicitly through our actions, that we really think we're better than everybody else. Yeah. And that's why the Lord loves us. You know, and that's something we got to guard against. And I definitely struggle with that a lot. So I, I, I agree with you. Like if I had to pick a prophet, I'm the most like in my moments of brutal honesty. I am the most like Jonah, it, you know, because he is the frankly, the most human, the least flattering portrait of a, of a prophet, <laughs> I think, in Scripture. Well, well, never mind. Actually, we will get to that. That's our special feature in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> our top our top five worst prophets in the Bible. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. We're gonna finish Jonah four and then we're gonna get there. Um So he's 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 not the worst prophet and he's not the least flatteringly portrayed prophet, but perhaps the most human and uh uh identifiable prophet. <laughs> yeah, he's the most whiny prophet, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, we can we can go with that. We've got we've got Jeremiah the weepy prophet and Jonah the whiny prophet. Hey, there we go. <laughs> so speaking of Jonah being whiny, we get this really fascinating, um, like emotional schizophrenia <laughs> going on within Jonah. And and it uses yeah. this this adverb exceedingly, right? So he's exceedingly angry over Nineveh's repentance, and then he's exceedingly glad when this plant shows up, right? And then so here's what I find interesting. This word exceedingly has been used throughout the book. We haven't talked about it yet. The mariners in chapter one are exceedingly fearful of the Lord, right? Fearful in the good sense. They fear him exceedingly. After tossing Jonah overboard, they, they're worried that they're going to be struck dead um, or, or that, you know, if they don't throw him overboard, that the sea will kill him, you know? So it's interesting that Jonah is just exceedingly obsessed with his own emotions and his own, you know, feelings. He's just mm -hmm. self-absorbed, mm -hmm. right? But all these other characters in the story who aren't even Israelites. No, no other character in the story is an Israelite. But they're all concerned with the God of Israel. <laughs> and they're and, exceedingly concerned. Yeah, in the case of the Mariners, at least, it, they're exceedingly concerned. And But Jonah only cares about himself. <laughs> right? Um, right. And everyone else is like, oh, man, uh, maybe there's lots of gods out there, but we better make sure that at least this one God of Israel, he's happy with us, right? Like... <laughs> We better make sure he doesn't overthrow us, right? And Jonah's just whining about a plant. <laughs> so I love this little detail, this contrast. Um, this is the Lord's prophet, and he doesn't care about the Lord's opinion at all, right? Right. So, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's sad and delightful. Just the storytelling is fantastic here. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a very, very well-told story, that's for sure. And so Jonah's like, basically, yeah, Lord, like, fine, I obeyed you, like, at least externally, but you can't make me be happy about it. That's kind of, <laughs> that's his petulant little rant here, you know. Uh, he's insistent that he's in the right. I do well to be angry, you know. And he's he's definitely, like, he's repented in his action, but not in his heart. This, like, fundamental hatred of the Ninevites, that's not gone away. That's still there. So, so the, the motivation that led him to this wrong path to begin with, despite all of his words in the belly of the fish, he's not changed, not fundamentally changed. This is kind of the, the, the surprise twist of chapter four, because you, you go to chapter three and you might kind of think, oh, well, he figured it out, you know. Um, but he never he never does. And, and that's actually what VeggieTales concludes <laughs> the Jonah movie. The, the song at the end is like Jonah was a prophet, but he never really got it, you know. That's that's a great synopsis of this character, Jonah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> he never really gets it. Um, yeah, interesting. So, I think the last thing we want to look at before we close out this uh, exploration of Jonah is how God talks to Jonah. Um, God hasn't yet spoken in this book until the end, and all of a sudden he pipes up and talks to Jonah directly, and they have this little dialogue. And I think it's fascinating how God talks to Jonah. I just That's what I love so much about this last chapter. This, this guy, God, this, this, this guy, this character, <laughs> he's, he's not a guy, he's a God, but, but he's, a, he's a character in the story like, like all the others. He's got a, 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 part, a part to play. He's got something to say here. And, uh, but it's all in question format. He doesn't actually say anything directly to Jonah. Um, well, and, and I should be I should be clear here. The Lord has spoken before, um, but it's just to give the message to go preach. That's all that the Lord has said so far. So there hasn't been this dialogue. There's just been commands. Yes, and and in those cases, you you get the um, the special phrase, "The word of the Lord came to Jonah," um, saying, and and then this quotation, which is like a pretty common phrase that gets used in the old testament for kind of like introducing like ah this is the prophetic word that i like am going to give to you that you are then to repeat um to you know such and such person of like then the word of the lord came to you know and, and that phrase shows up a lot but this is the first time where god like as a character is speak is like dialoguing with somebody yeah there's a difference in the directness of it for sure right and it's interesting that when it comes to nature, God appoints things, right? He appoints the worm, the, the east wind. He appoints the, the fish to swallow Jonah. But he doesn't appoint. Uh, he doesn't make Jonah do things. He, and he doesn't make Nineveh do things either, for that matter. Instead, there's like this expectation of a response. Yeah. So, so God speaks in a different way to Jonah than he spoke to the fish to make it vomit him on dry land. Instead, he has this dialogue because it's expected that we as people can respond to God. That's part of what it means to be made in his image. Mm-hmm. So so you've got this form of dialogue and God is just so good at this. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just, oh man, he just penetrates to the soul of Jonah's heart, you know? And, and so, <laughs> so he asks them these devastating questions, right? Do you do well to be angry? Yeah. <laughs> like it's like I'm gonna make you say it yourself, Jonah, and he just keeps on his little petulant, you know, temper tantrum. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, I, do, I do do well to be angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it, you know, God's doing this like interrogative sort of strategy here. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? Like, who told you that yeah. you were naked, right? This, this like, he, he, God interrogates us. We don't ask the questions here. That's kind of the, the, um, yeah. the idea I get from this. But it's also kind of like, God's not being a jerk about it. He's just trying to, like, get to the core of the issue by asking these questions, you know, and trying to get Jonah there so that he's seeing things the way God is. So we've got this, you know, back and forth. And finally, God hits Jonah with such a great question that it just ends the book. <laughs> and the author doesn't feel like it's necessary to go on. And I'll read the whole thing again because I just think it's the greatest thing. Um, the Lord says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's how it ends. So it, we have this ambiguous ending. God asks, hey, so you're sitting here pitying the plant. What about me? I mean, do, don't I get to pity something? Well, here's a better idea for something to pity. What about these people who were perishing and now they've repented? Right? Don't I have the right to pity these people whom I formed with my own hands, who came from the dust of the earth, who I've developed their civilization over the course of how many years, right? There's 120,000 people in that great city with a culture they've developed, but they're lost in their sin. Don't I have the right to pity them it, while you're sitting here pitying this plant that you didn't even make yourself and it, you only had it for a day? Yeah. <laughs> That's just such a great like way to hit Jonah with like a ton of bricks, right? And he doesn't yeah, respond. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess for me, I think there's several ways to understand why the book ends this way. But I'm curious what your favorite theory or idea is, John. Yeah, yeah. No, so like what the the end of this book makes me think is actually very similar to the end of the book of Job. Um <laughs> You know, where it's like, you know, God answers him out of the whirlwind. And then it's a bunch of it. Like God also asks Job a bunch of questions of like, where were you when, you know, this was formed or when this thing happened? And um, and it, it's sure the tone in, in, in Job is different than here. But I, I, I think the point is the questions that we get before. I, like, I, I, I think it is interesting that, um, uh, you know, God. uh you know, the first question that he asks is like, you know, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah responds like he has an answer. He says like, yes, it, you know, I, I do do well to be angry. But then the second question that God, you know, God asks him this second question of like, you know, shouldn't I pity? And I think kind of the point is Jonah doesn't have a response to this. Like it, I I, I think the point that we're trying to, that, that we get with this ambiguous ending to the story is that Jonah has been acting like a petulant child, you know, up, up, up in this like section of the, uh, of the book of the way that he's responding and the way that he's acting. And you finally get to this like last question, you know, and, and it is an emotional punch of like, you know, 
what is this plant compared with all, like all of these hundreds of thousands of people and you know and and i i think the point of like what this is supposed to leave us with is there isn't an answer to that question like you like what is jonah going to say like yes it, it like it is wrong for you to pity these people when i was pitying this plant like there just there isn't a response for it and so like i i think that it's we get this ending because this is like this is the thing that finally breaks jonah and in the same way it's like that we feel that in this is the question that breaks the narrative like we're going along and going along and going along and suddenly there is no answer and so the story stops yeah yep yeah that's that's kind of how i think of it but i might add a little different of a spin oh sure yeah hit me with it i think i think that's right but i also think as a reader mhm they're like how am i going to respond to this right and, oh and sure books are obviously written with the audience in mind and so i think for jonah that's true that's like jonah doesn't have a good answer to that yeah. so it ends there so so from jonah's perspective that's why the story ends but as the reader i think having an ambiguous ending like this creates the it, it invites the reader to make their own choice yeah right? this is the the nature of ambiguous endings and so it's kind of like now it's extending the idea to us of like, will we submit to the Lord or not? Like, are we going to, how is Jonah going to respond to this? Oh, we don't even know. We don't, we're not even told what he does. He, he had to have responded one way or the other, right? I, I'd like to think the best of Jonah, although I'm not sure I, I do <laughs> after reading this book because <laughs> his repentance wasn't genuine the first time, really. Yeah, I but I I will say I I tend to think that I think that Jonah does finally get it um simply because we have the book of Jonah. <laughs> so it's like he had to write it down eventually. <laughs> sure. Well, the book doesn't say Jonah wrote it. So you never know. Um, oh, okay. That's a good point. But uh but presumably he would have been alive to recount the story. So that being said, I I think the the ending serves to like offer the question to us, right? Okay, so we don't know what Jonah chose. So how would we choose, right? Yeah. Will we obey the Lord or not? Will we obey him wholeheartedly? Will we be whiny about it? Will we, you know, hate those we should be merciful to or not? And so there's this statement of God's mercy at the end of the book and kind of an offering to us, how will we respond to it? Yeah. And um, I like books that have these endings. It reminds me of like the Lorax, right? By Dr. Seuss. All the trees get cut down and then there's this one seed left and that it, it ends on that, right? So the, the idea being like, well, are you going to plant the seed or not? Mm, um, mm -hmm. it's not? It's not a foregone conclusion that the seed will be planted. Maybe all the trees will be gone forever, you know? Um, and that's kind of the beauty of that book. Uh, will we make the world a better place or not? Um, and I think Jonah functions similarly to that, at least for me when I read it. That's that's how I respond. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should pity Nineveh just like God did. That's that's how we're supposed to respond to that. But but I could choose not to, and that that's terrifying, right? <laughs> I could choose to never get it. Well, all that being said, um, I think we've hit on like what's the book of Jonah about? Uh, you know, it's it's about. God's mercy on other people. 
And of course, this is fully fulfilled in Christ and how his saving benefits go to all the Gentiles in a way that was never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, Jonah is an especially important book, I think, for us in the New Covenant age. Um, but it's important to get that, that it's about God's character. It's not about this guy Jonah, really, <laughs> even though he's a major character. It's not about how he was scared to preach to the Ninevites or anything. It's about his kind of like presumption of status before God. Mm -hmm. Right. And his presumption that the Ninevites don't deserve that, but he does. That's what he's dealing with. And that's kind of our, our, um, John 3.15 take on it, although we've talked about a lot of other great details along the way. Oh, <laughs> sorry, before we get to our top five worst prophets, we have to talk about God mentioning the cattle. <laughs> oh, yes, how could we have forgotten the cattle? It's the last word in the book. Yeah, so God doesn't just care that there's 120,000 people who are going to be destroyed. He cares about the cattle, too. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the cattle did repent as well. That's, yep, that's, <laughs> that that plot thread was followed through to the end, and jo Jonah has one up on the Star Wars sequels. <laughs> yes. Because he, he managed to, to make sure that plot point got, got to it where it was going. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this is like, there's not too much to say about it that we haven't already said talking about Romans 8. Right. But just this idea that like, salvation is holistic and it also involves the creation so the cattle matter here yes that that in the same way you know you get that that you know the people who don't know their right hands from their left and you know they're like caught in their own sinfulness and wickedness that you know the the image here is that that affects even like the the cattle that are in the city too that they are like caught up in this same uh uh like culture of wickedness that you know is is endemic in this city and that they too need to be delivered as well yeah like even though it might have been silly to put sackcloth and ashes on them and maybe that's not necessary it's still cool that they did that you know that they understood that the whole yeah the whole city needed to be saved and also like you know god is comparing this to the plant right god is saying like you pity look even if it weren't for the, the people like obviously the cattle ought to be preferred to the plant right all, all you care about is yourself yeah, all these animals totally. jonah <laughs> what are we gonna do with them right so it's just an interesting little point there like the the, the book chooses to end that way god cares about the cattle mm -hmm. um yeah so now that we've uh talked about our opinion on cattle um i think we should jump to our Top five, top five worst prophets. This will be our other meat for this episode. It's time for the other meat. All right. Well, ending on a on a fun note here, we have our top five worst prophets. So you can play along at home, folks, as well. If you want to pause the podcast here and see if you can think of what are in your guys's opinions are the top five worst prophets, but we are about to give our hot takes. So we'll start it up. Jeremy, number five, who is the fifth worst prophet in the Bible? Well, he also happens to be the first King of Israel. And that is Saul. <laughs> what do you mean? Saul was a prophet. Yeah. So in first Samuel 10, um, Saul prophesies amongst a group of other prophets. And it actually is kind of such a notable occurrence that 
the people start circulating this phrase among among the Israelites, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? <laughs> and the answer is yes, he is, because at least on this one occasion, he did prophesy. But Saul was a jerk. He's a terrible king. Yeah, he tried to kill David. And like, I don't know. I've read the Bible enough to know that David was cool. Yep. <laughs> so this Saul definitely makes our top five worst uh, in the number five slot. And let me tell you, it only goes downhill from here. All right, lay on us number four, John. Well, number four is uh, actually a pair of individuals, uh, but the, the this pair of worst prophets are Ahab and Zedekiah. So this comes from uh, Jeremiah twenty uh, verses twenty one and twenty three. Uh, so we'll, I'll just I'll just read the section for you here. So thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab the son of uh, Koliah and Zedekiah the son of Manasseh who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Uh, because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles in from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they've committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am a witness, declares the Lord. So <laughs> you've got to hate these guys. Like, just, you know, tell, tell me what you don't like about them. <laughs> right, oh, Lord? Like, <laughs> so not only are they lying, but they're committing adultery with their neighbors' wives. They're like the person everyone wants to oust from the community. Like, yeah, they're like, <laughs> nobody, nobody likes these guys. <laughs> and I do love this that like, you know, there's going to be this like saying of like, you know, be like this person whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. It's like, oh, dude, it's like chestnuts. It's really metal. <sighs> Chestnut number one, Ahab. Chestnut number two, Zedekiah roasting on the fire. Yeah, it's like they're like the anti Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. <laughs> and they're so bad that even though they didn't try to kill anybody, I hate them more than Saul. <laughs> <laughs> although maybe i shouldn't say the word hate we're supposed to be merciful remember mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> well how about let's uh quickly move away from that one and go on to bad prophets number three so who is our third worst prophet in the bible <laughs> so we got this this dude named bar jesus <laughs> um and his real name is elimus um but bar jesus i think that's like son of jesus uh in aramaic so so, which doesn't necessarily, like, Jesus is a common name among the Jews. So that doesn't necessarily mean he's claiming to be, like, related to Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe it does, but it doesn't necessarily. But so this guy shows up in Acts 13, and he's a magician, and it describes him as a Jewish false prophet. And he opposes uh, Paul and Silas. I be Now, this is Paul and Barnabas at this point, not Silas, I'm pretty sure. And he's trying to get the, the proconsul in the area they're traveling in to, to not convert to Christianity. So Paul looks right at him. It says he looks intently at Bar-Jesus and says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then uh, he, bego he becomes blind. <laughs> and, and it says that he seeks people to lead him by the hand that's how blind he is so 
Yeah, so this guy's trying to keep people from becoming Christians, and uh, Paul directly uh, identifies him as the enemy of all righteousness and a son of the devil. So, you know, <laughs> he's not sleeping around with his neighbor's wives, but I don't know, enemy of all righteousness, that sounds even worse. Like, that's pretty yep. bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, number two, uh, second worst prophet. The second worst prophet in the Bible is Jezebel. But not the Old Testament one, the New Testament Jezebel uh, comes from Revelation 2. Now, this is uh, in the word to one of the seven churches. Jeremy, which which church is this to? Thyatira. Thyatira. Okay. If I remember correctly. Um, so we'll, we'll provisionally go with Thyatira here. But here, I'll read it for you. It starts up in verse 20. Um, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her in onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. Yeah, so like, <laughs> yeah, if Jonah refused to repent, how much more Jezebel, <laughs> right? Like, she refuses to repent of her <laughs> immorality. Yeah, Jesus doesn't like Jezebel. Um, so I think that's a fair a fair entry on our list here. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I would I would also say you know it's if uh, if Bar Jesus was like struck uh, blind for trying to. Uh, um, you know, prevent people from becoming Christians. I think, you know, if you have those who are like leading Christians astray and leading them into sin, I, I mean, I, that one feels like a bit more of a big deal to me. Agreed. Well, lastly, um, drum roll, please. We have our number one worst prophet in the Bible. <laughs> and it comes also from Revelation. And wouldn't you know it, it's the false prophet. <laughs> <laughs> The false prophet from Revelation is the worst prophet, in my humble opinion. So this is the guy who... Mm -hmm. Hot take. <laughs> this is the guy who deceives people to receive the mark of the beast and worship the image of the beast. Um, and he's actually described as a second beast earlier in Revelation. Uh, well, I, you know, like a lot of things, there's some arguments about what things mean in Revelation. But... Regardless of how we interpret it, there is this dude called the false prophet, and he, uh, well, let's just say that if Jezebel had a, a, a poor fate, then this guy gets it worse. Uh, it says that he was thrown with the beast into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and he was thrown alive. So he, he's thrown alive into the lake that burns with circle, uh, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's hard to say. Say that five times fast. So this guy... The lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Yeah. So this is the guy who's behind all those barcodes that people are getting implanted in their hands. <laughs> this is the guy who's behind all that subliminal messaging on Monster Cans or Procter & Gamble products or whatever it is. But yeah, I think you, you got to top the charts with, you know, like the prophet who leads people astray into worshiping the beast. <laughs> Now, Jonah didn't make our top five worst list, and, you know, it's hard to beat even Saul, who was an attempted murderer. Um, but, like we said, he's the whiniest one, so he has that going for him, and he's also the lamest one. Like, I don't know, you kind of have to, 
in a in a bizarre way, you kind of have to respect like the false prophet from Revelation because he's really committed to his work. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you you do at least got to give him that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the villain. The villain, you sort of like you don't root for him by any means, but you're kind of like, well, at least I got a formidable opponent, right? This would be lame if it was just like no no uh, strength or uh, persistence whatsoever. So I kind of walk away still a little more annoyed at Jonah. well how's that for application this week (laughs) yeah our application is five prophets to not be like (laughs) yes and a sixth one to not whine as much as (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, five prophets to not be like six prophets to not whine like (laughs) I don't know maybe there's something in there I don't know (laughs) it's time for milk not solid food well, let's close this off. Uh, let's, uh, for our final verse, let's read a verse from Jonah again. And I'm thinking of reading Jonah's confession when he finally admits to the Lord why he didn't want to preach to Nineveh. Um, so, out of the mouth of a prophet, quote from Jonah 4.2, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. Thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.